Our scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. Actually, while I was uh, giving the announcements, failed to mention that um, I hope you noticed we got new bulletins this week. Uh, this is not, uh, these are not accidents. <laughs> this came about through a lot of work that uh, Randall and uh, Whitney, our communications director, uh, put together. We're so proud of these. I really like them. So thank you to Whitney and to Randall for putting that together. Um, it was uh, chapter two of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, where we see Gandalf introducing the young Frodo to a character from the past whose name used to be Smeagol. This is the first description we get of him. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Smeagol. He was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived into deep pools. He burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunneled into green mounds. And he ceased to look up at the hilltops or the leaves on the trees or the flowers opening in the air. His head and his eyes were downward. Well, as the story goes on, Smeagol goes fishing one day with a friend of his, Deagol. And after hooking a large fish, Deagol gets pulled into the water down to the bottom of a river. But while he's there, he finds a large gold ring at the bottom of the river. So he picks it up and swims to the surface and shows it off to his friend, Smeagol. And that's when things will turn. <laughs> Because it says here in the text, there in his hand lay a beautiful golden ring, and it shone glittering in the sun so that his heart was glad. But Smeagol had been watching him from behind a tree. And as Degal gloated over the ring, Smeagol came up softly behind. Give us that, Degal, my love, said Smeagol over his friend's shoulder. Why, said Degal, because it's my birthday, my love, and I want it, said Smeagol. Now look, if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings books, you'll know that what followed after that simple act of wanting was disastrous. <laughs> because this was no ordinary ring. This was the ring of power that was forged in the fires of Mount Doom and gave its uh, holder untold powers. But what's so dramatic about the story is, is how Smeagol becomes warped and twisted over, the time, over time completely consumed by his desire for the ring. So much so that as the ages go on, it morphs him into this disgusting creature known as Gollum. And I don't know that there's that many more powerful depictions in the last hundred years of, uh, of, of English literature that talk about the power that our desires have over us. There is a world of hurt that gets opened up in those civilizations, in those books, that come on the heels of this sickly creature's desire. And that's all it is. But it also occurred to me that Tolkien's rendition of this is actually booting off a very faithful way in which the Bible talks about our desire. I'm thinking especially of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where James says this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Did you see the progression there? James is saying that wherever and in whatever form you find death, 
it owes its ultimate existence to desire in the human heart. And so as we're finishing these Ten Commandments today, it makes sense that Yahweh would put on this list an admonition about the root of the destruction of human flourishing. Warped human desire, or as your text says, coveting. We've been explaining all fall that the Ten Commandments were not given as a mere abstract moral framework, but rather that there was something intrinsic to people's humanity that was reflected in each command. So we've learned about how we're built. We've learned that man flourishes when he lives under legitimate authority in the Fifth Commandment. We've learned that man was created to live a full life in the Sixth Commandment. We find out that he's a sexual being in the seventh commandment and that he's got privilege to be a steward over God's good creation in the eighth commandment. Finally, last week we found out that even his words are powerful as they're created by God. And so these commandments are given to protect the vital interests of what you call you. They're all about us. They're about the manufacturer's design of us in that sense. Now we find out that the manufacturer designed us to be satisfied, that he created human beings to know contentment. And right away, you ought to notice something really unique about this command because, you know, every other command that we've looked at has tendencies that when they're broken, you can kind of very easily see them, can't you? But this command goes into the secret places, into the subtle places of the heart, because whether or not you are satisfied with your life, content all by yourself, That's really only ultimately known to you and God, isn't it? So therefore, we get what coveting is in a subtle sense. And right away, I think we find something that's really unique about the way in which Christians even read the Ten Commandments. I had a friend of mine who was having a conversation years ago uh, with a Jewish rabbi. And the rabbi commented to him, he said, you know, the problem with you Christians is you think that you've broken the law uh, just because you, you, you wanted something or something because it happened in your heart. He said, but we Jews only believe that you've broken the law when you actually commit a sin. But that's not right, is it? (laughs) Right here in the heart of the Jewish uh, law code was a command that zeroes in on your motives, on your desires. In other words, Christianity alone is a religion that does not set forth a God who simply wants conformity to the rules. He wants to be inside of us in our motives, in our desires. In other words, he wants to be a lover of his people. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to have a spouse who did all the things that they did, and rightly so, but if it's done for any other reason than to get you, then doesn't that love leave you feeling cold? Well, in the last commandment, Yahweh says, look, in addition to all of these last nine things, I don't want mere conformity. I want you. I want your heart. So there's three things that we can look at the, and when it comes to coveting as we unpack this. Uh, uh, first of all, I want to look at the anatomy of coveting, the power of coveting, and the healing of coveting. You've got that outlined in your brand new spanking new bulletin there. First of all, the anatomy of coveting. I want to sort of pull this apart because understanding your desire is a fundamental way to get the Bible's opinion of you. What it is that makes you tick. Because I think in our day, when we think about the human self, we mostly think of ourselves as rational beings. What am I? I'm a thinking person. But that's not the Bible's whole picture. 
Yes, we think, but we are not primarily thinking things. More fundamentally, according to the Bible, we are desiring things. That's the essence of our humanity. And and a simple uh, excursus through Scripture will help us with this. Genesis 2-7 says that Adam was made a living soul. And so our souls are what move us to action. It's our souls that move us by desire. Take, for example, 1 Samuel 23, verse 20. When King Saul has his advisors encouraging him to go and pursue the young David. What do they say to him in verse 20? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. That's how the Bible talks. We act in accordance to our desires. Why? Well, as it turns out, God acts that way. Job 23, 13 says this, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? Listen to this. What he desires, that he does. You see the point? We can go on. Sexual desire, we find, is a longing of the soul. We find it in Genesis 34, 8. We find in Psalm 107, 9 that hunger and thirst arise from the soul. Psalm 42 tells us that yearning for God's presence is also a desire of the soul. So everything that we do is motivated either by a proper or a distorted love. I love the way one theologian put it when he said, Desire is the combustible power that moves human life. Very well said. So the Bible acknowledges that there's a disruptive, dangerous power to our desire. But don't get fooled here. Because it's not desire itself that's evil just because it happens to have some strength. No. Desire becomes evil when it gets fixated on evil objects or evil ends. In other words, when we misevaluate the desirability of something. You know, think about it in Genesis chapter 2. Eve covets the fruit, chapter 3 that is, and takes the fruit. In Genesis 34, we get the story of Shechem who desires Dinah and seduces her. Joshua 7, 21, we find Achan. Remember the Achan in the camp? Who desires the treasures of Jericho, and so he steals it. And Yahweh takes it very personally. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 25, that evil desire lays traps for people. And so what we have is, is the Bible's picture of us, is that our souls impel us to seek satisfactions in things that we wrongly judge to be satisfying. This is why you are the way you are, according to the Bible. Now look, there's a difference between coveting and wanting. And I mentioned this just to kind of help us. Wanting is when you are the dog and the desire is the tail. (laughs) Coveting is when you're the tail and the dog is the desire. That's coveting. That is, it's controlling you. It guides your decision making. And it either produces elation, depending on whether you get that object, or depression and worry and unhappiness if you don't. That's how we rise up and down. Like I go into this much because what we find is that this desire that comes out of us is the discharge of what the Bible calls the heart. And if you've ever heard me speak for any length of time, you know that I'm grieved by a lot of unbiblical terminology that people use when they talk about the heart. But to suffice to say, the Bible describes our heart as the place from which all of our wanting, all of our treasuring, all of our longing, it all extends from this, me- this mechanism. 
So when we look at our dissatisfaction, we see a very profound thing about our hearts. There's a direct connection there. And once you start examining, you realize that it's not always as overt as you might think it is. It's incredibly subtle. Gives me a chance to uncork one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, where he talks about contentment and how it really is in place every time we think about something beautiful. Listen to this quote. He says, when you stand before a landscape that seems to embody what you've been looking for all your life, in your hobbies, it's the secret attraction often on the verge of breaking through, through the scent of cut wood in the workshop to the clap-clap of water against a boatside. You've never had it. But if it would ever become manifest, you would say, oh, here at last is the thing I was made for. It is the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? I think this is amazing because honestly, I, everyone relates to this experience because every one of us has a hobby, a pursuit but no matter how much you search it out, have you ever noticed that it always fails to kind of bring you over into the real satisfaction that you wanted from it? I think of two examples. The first one is this. Have you ever been in a place where you're looking at a beautiful scenery? Okay? That is, you're looking out over a, a, a gorgeous vista, right? Uh, a beautiful scene. Maybe it's a sunset. Maybe it's a beach scene. And like everything inside of you like wants to jump off the cliff and maybe fly around in it? What are we wanting in that moment? What are we longing for? I thought of a second one. This one's a little funny. The second one is, have you ever had an elderly lady who will pick up a small child and just kind of scoop the child up and coddle it and coo over it for a second? And in the South, sometimes they'll say, oh, I could just eat you up. Is that not the weirdest thing someone could say? <laughs> what do you mean you want to eat them up? Why do they say that? Because there's a desire inside of us to get into the beauty, to get into the wonder, or to have the wonder get into us. And what Lewis is saying is, that is the problem with our desire. We long for these things, but we just can't quite get through. I think this is what Paul is talking about when he gets to Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, when he says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. Isn't that fascinating what he says? I think it makes sense for him to say, I've learned to be content in my want. But what does he mean when he says he learned to be complete in his plenty? Why do I have to learn to be content when I have all I want? Are you ready for this? Because of what C.S. Lewis is saying. Because even those who have it all give the same refrain over and over again when you get it. It's like, is that all there is? But we never stop to consider this as a possibility. For most of us, our Christian life is spent doing nothing more than praying over and over again for better circumstances. Does that describe us? Oh, Lord, I just need a better spouse. If only I could get a better job. If only I could get a better figure or whatever. In other words, my first dream was wrong. All I need is a new dream. And we're so quick to move on whenever we think that that little piece of nirvana isn't going to quite get it. We just go to the next thing. Look, I hope you can see that the 10th commandment kind of bookends the first commandment. They're kind of talking about the same thing. 
only in psychological terms in the tent. Because for so many of us, we just spend our days, even in churches, going from one thing to the next, hoping that we're going to find satisfaction. Even when Mick Jagger has encouraged us that we can't get it. I apologize for that. I almost left that out of the notes, but I sh- and I probably should have. So that's the anatomy of coveting, what it is that makes us tick. Secondly, though, and much more briefly, I want to look at the power of coveting. Because here's the deal. Nobody survives this commandment. You know, if you were taking fencing lessons with a little sword, right, you would become familiar with the term known as the coup de grace, the final blow. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says that it's the blow or the shot that brings death to the sufferer, the death blow, a finishing stroke. The Tenth Commandment is God's coup de grace. Because if you're delusional enough to think that you somehow have made it unscathed through the first nine commandments, uh, this one's going to do you in absolutely certainly. But what I want to post to you this morning is if what if that's exactly what the law is supposed to do? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old theologian, once said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that the law of God was given not to wound you, to make you feel badly about yourself, The law of God was given to kill you, to make you despair of ever being able to keep it in the first place. You see, because our contentment and our pursuit of it is so counterintuitive, because God has built us to be satisfied, contented, at peace. But sin has made us at the most basic level of our existence unable to even see the fact that we'll only ever really be at peace until we're in the right relationship with God. And so what God does is he issues a command to be content so that we can see that we're not in him. So the whole point of the command is to get me to die to the idea of ever attaining contentment outside of first being content in God. And you cannot sort of talk about this without using the ultimate example in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Listen to the way he talks, beginning in verse 7, of his life prior to becoming a Christian. He says, look, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Because apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, what's Paul saying there? Well, he's talking about the the law in general, all commandments in general. But I find it interesting that the law he zeroes in on is do not covet. Why? Well, because that's the one that took him down. (laughs) You know, Paul, he's he's not saying that he was spiritually alive before he came to the law. He's saying that he thought he was spiritually alive before he came to the Tenth Commandment. And when all of a sudden God looked and said, I want you to be completely satisfied in every station of life, whether you've got everything or whether you've got nothing, Paul says, I died. It was over. I was done for. What I want you to think about this morning is, is what if that is exactly what the law is supposed to do? What if that's its purpose in our life? Look, I want to answer that question more specifically in the last point. But before we move on, I need us to think for a second about how it is in modern American Christianity, that almost everything in our religious subculture is trying to keep us from admitting this about yourself. This is actually a 15-year-old illustration, which I apologize for, but I don't think it's gotten any better, of some people, some researchers who went to a Christian book convention to survey religious uh, conservatives, conservative evangelists, people who believe the Bible, 
and they wanted to ask them about their relationship to the Ten Commandments. All right? Listen to the numbers here. Of the people surveyed at this Christian book convention, 76% of them don't think they tolerate other gods. 77% don't think they've ever failed in their obligation to honor their parents. 93% say they're guiltless of murder. 82% think they've never committed adultery. 86% think that they're absolutely clear on the command not to steal. And 53%, nearly half, say that they've never coveted. And finally, the one that sort of unnerved me the most, 48% of all these conservative Christians do not think they have ever fallen short of God's glory. Let that sink in for a second. That means that the entire motion of American evangelicalism is trying to keep you from admitting what this is supposed to do. And it's such a tragic irony because it very well may be that our failure to admit that we are hopeless before the law is the thing that's keeping us from contentment. That's the problem. The, the phrase coup de grace literally translated means the blow of mercy. It's a merciful blow that the 10th commandment gets us because our greatest hindrance to contentment is not that you've not kept God's law, but rather it's the assumption that you ever kept it in the first place. It's the power of coveting to unleash in us all manner of coveting. But thirdly and finally, what about the healing of coveting? Is there a way to sort of get through this? Of course there is. The Bible says that we can be content. We can know satisfaction whether we've gained it all or whether we've lost it all. Hey, but did you notice that we stopped short when Paul was talking in Philippians chapter 4 of how he finished that? Let's go back through it one more time. Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, for, you can probably say it with me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, if there was ever a verse <laughs> that has been ripped out of its own context, it's that one. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, he's saying is, I have found something in Jesus that has gotten beneath my behaviors. I've got something that's gotten beyond my circumstances. I found something that moves beyond my, my fluctuating mental states of, of positivity at one moment and negativity at the other. It's undermined it all. In other words, there's all kinds of ways that we could change our behavior. Frankly, if all you came to church for was for behavior modification, there's plenty of much better ways to do that. So many people come to church like, oh, time for me to get my heart right. I need to get back to church. There's therapy that can help you out. There's, there's, there's all kinds of religious gimmickry. There's, there's you know, uh, accountability partners you can get. You don't need Jesus for any of those things. But Paul is saying... Only Jesus is the one who can deal with this disease of discontentment. Back to Tolkien for a second. You know, Tolkien actually noticed the same thing. As the journey of the thing goes on, if, if you're saying don't spoil it for me, that, that's your own problem if you've not read it or seen the movies yet. But at the, the very end of the books, you've got the, 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 the bedraggled Frodo wrestling with the, with the crazed Gollum to get control of the ring. It's the f crescendo of the whole movie. And what happens is, is neither of them are able to throw it into the fires and destroy it. Neither of them. They're fighting each other to have it. They're too overcome. The ring is too heavy. It's been all-consuming. But Gollum is able in a moment of their wrestling, literally to bite the ring off of Frodo's hand. Taking his finger with him, by the way. And as Gollum is sort of dancing in jubilation over finally having it, 
to the object of his desire, he stumbles and he trips and he falls down into the fires of Mount Doom and thus destroys the ring of power. I find that fascinating because the hero of the Lord of the Rings is not Frodo. The hero of the Lord of the Rings is the providence of God who is leading his people through experiences of overwhelming covetousness all the while training their hearts to long for something else, something more, something better. But here's the thing. Only God can do that. Frodo couldn't. Gollum certainly couldn't. It only happened by accident. But what an accident, wasn't it? It was the guiding hand of providence moving it to the place where it needed to be. So the question is, how how has God moved in human history? Let's leave Middle Earth for a moment. <laughs> How has he dealt it with us here? Well, think about it, what, Paul, what, what it was that Paul found. In every page of the New Testament, we find this, this story leading to Jesus up on a cross. And while he's there, does he not experience the ultimate in discontentment? When on the cross he screams, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is it possible in that moment... That the whole of the gospel was launched from the notion of these apostles who saw that great cosmic discontentment as him bearing my idolatrous coveting. Because he does so, he absorbs it, he neutralizes it, and he kills it. Jesus becomes our coveting. And his father kills him for it. Why? So that we can be content. So that we can be content in only Him and find that all I really need and all I really have is in Him. Look, all faith begins in hunger and humility. That's why we went through that that confession of sin this morning, which was torturous, by the way. Did you read that? Take that bulletin home and read that this afternoon again. That is a searching prayer. Why do we do that? Because it begins in hunger. All faith begins in hunger so that in the midst of that hunger, I can feed on Christ. The great church father Augustine said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless. Our hearts are covetous (laughs) until we find our satisfaction and our contentment in you. Man, haven't we watched this the entire fall of how God leads us over and over again where number one and number two and number three, all the way to number ten, they keep knocking us down and knocking us down. But don't you see the reason why it does that is so that we can find our rest in Him. That's the purpose of the commandments. That's this brand new transformed life, this healing that God's trying to do in His people. Summed up right there we got one more week to look at this, by the way, because we need to look and make sure that the Bible gives us some good news for lawbreakers. So stay tuned for next week. I wanted to finish this section, though, with a quote from one of my favorite theologians on the Ten Commandments when he says this. He says, in order to be true sons and daughters, we need another Pentecost beyond Sinai when the Spirit comes and writes his word, truth, on human hearts. Only then will we fulfill Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That describes Jesus' life of sonship and freedom. His soul hungering and thirsting for only his Father's pleasure. And in the 10th commandment, he calls us to the exact same freedom. 
I love this. Life is a treasure hunt. I can't sum it up any better than that. Life is a treasure hunt. We seek a place to place our hearts where we will find the weighty treasure that will lighten our souls. I love that phrase. There is a weighty treasure that will lighten your souls. And of all places, you begin and find it in the law of God. And it pushes us out to find Jesus to be altogether lovely. That's a treasure to seek, isn't it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you take the scales off of our eyes that are still enamored with the trinkets of this world. We still thought that it was the best thing in the world to have a wonderful house and a really nice car and 3.2 well-adjusted children in the suburbs and to live in Oxford and have beauty all around us. Father, we thought that was what we needed. And we set our desires on all these things and they've betrayed us time and time again. Father, we can't even stand out over a, over a sunset and feel like we can gain access to it. So we pray this morning that for each and every soul in this room, you would walk them into the real beauty. And that is the beauty that is only to be found in your cross, in your gospel, and for the way in which you have provided medicine for our souls. Father, it is only if you do it will that happen because you're the one who is providentially guiding all things. Would you do that then for these people this morning? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.